Welcome everybody back to Veil of Sound. Now it's January 1st, 2024. When you clicked on this link, you have already seen that we want to start the year with a bang. And I'm very, very, very happy to have one of those persons that everybody here at Veil of Sound can agree on. But I'm very happy to have Aaron Turner here. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's highly, it's our high pleasure. Aaron, um, I've said that already to you when we spoke a little bit before. I want to have a look and I want to have a chat about you, not primarily as the musician, but as the visual artist. Because I think that there is something that a lot of people forget when they talk about you and also when they talk about Hydra Hat, a lot of people forget that what a lot of that what many of us saw but didn't recognize is that you were not only how should I say responsible for the roster building, but you were also responsible for I think not every artwork but loads of artwork for Hydra Hat. Yep, that's true. Quite a lot of it. Sometimes under your own name, sometimes just under the name of Aaron, you know, various, various uh, ciphers for that, but you've did most of them. And was that also something that you were interested in right from the start of a label or did it just happen like that? No, it was very intentional. Um, one of the things that I appreciated as a as a music listener and, and um, especially once I started getting into underground music was uh, how a lot of labels uh, were sort of curating the visual aspect of their presentation. Um, and that was what I had hoped to do with Hydrahead was kind of an overall curation of the music as well as the visuals. Um, and uh, for me, going back to early childhood, music and art were often tied together, sometimes mm -hmm. in a peripheral way, sometimes very explicitly. So when it um, came to doing the label, as often as was possible, I tried to do the sleeves. Um, and uh, I never, I never uh, enforce this as a policy with artists. If there were certain bands that wanted to do their own artwork, that was of course fine. Um, however, I did always make it an option available to people. And I think it was something that eventually um, started to become part of the appeal of the label. Uh, we had this clear visual identity and I was able to help um, match my uh, my aesthetic to whatever music was at hand and the, and the vision of the people involved. It's really interesting that you say that there is like, I don't want to say a corporate entity because that's not it, but I think that you are totally right when you say that Hydra had records were recognizable from something and I cannot even pinpoint it. It probably is your style. Um, but it's also interesting to see the change when we look at how that developed. When I think of the first few EPs, the Corin EP, the Vent EP, um, Milltown, Piebald, all of those were very different from each other. But correct me if I'm wrong. I think that corporate identity and that recognizability, that really 
took a huge leap when you did the cover series for the Black Sabbath tributes? Uh, well, the first the first handful of seven inches that you mentioned definitely is uh, I'm kind of scattered in the visual presentation, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that I um, was either trying to figure out how to to create um, a cohesive uh, visual aesthetic, or it, it was just simply that I had nothing to do with the artwork or, you know, the bands had a cover image and I sort of just put the pieces together. Um, yes. When it came to doing the series of Black Sabbath tribute, seven inches, I mean, one of the ideas was to have uh, a visual through line connecting all of the releases. So, you know, um, cohesiveness uh, with the graphic aspect of those was certainly the goal um and then i think also in tandem with that i was starting to figure out a way to have just an overall cohesive visual presentation for the label um which did have something to do with my own style and also just with how i wanted the label to appear to people who were encountering our releases You've spoken about labels that you, when you grew up, that you saw and that you admired for their cohesive outward appearance. Can you pinpoint one or two of those? I have one or two in mind, but I would definitely say, but I'm not sure if we have the same ones. Um, one, one that stuck out to me early on was uh gravity records who are based in san diego and one of the things i liked about them is they they uh they had a um they had a handmade approach to a lot of their packaging where they were either doing some kind of printing themselves on for all of the artwork or in some cases, it was simple as they had like a you know like an offset printed sleeve, but then they would hand write on on each one, mm -hmm. um, and they were using at times sort of semi unorthodox materials, um, and that was really interesting to me. This combination of kind of mass production mixed with like a DIY almost sort of arts and crafts approach to mm -hmm. to making things. Um, but again, that the 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 visual personality of the label was was evident in not every release, but just sort of the catalog as a whole. And I later came to realize that one of the you know the main person behind the label was responsible for a lot of the graphics. Mm -hmm. um, so that was definitely that was definitely one that that. Um, that I became aware of as soon as I, like I said earlier, started getting into more underground uh, music, punk and hardcore specifically. Um, and then there were there were quite a few over the years um, that sort of reinforced that um, just the premise that having a visual identity was maybe not quite as important as the musical identity, but certainly um, next in line. And uh, 
uh, on on another end of the spectrum, but um, perhaps equally influential for me was when I discovered Touch Records, who are based in the UK, and um, John Wozencroft, one of the the co owners of the label, um, also a very prolific designer, had a hand in I think just about every sleeve they ever did, and there was this very careful curation of the music as well as the sleeves and um it was interesting to me that you know especially at the time when i was buying a lot of records in stores um i could go into a shop and immediately identify a touch sleeve mm -hmm. um and for me you could you could correlate this with the idea of corporate identity, but I never registered it on that level. It was more of an artistic identity, mm -hmm. which, um, which you know, as I said before, kind of covered the music itself as well as the visuals and that direct correlation. This overall concept of um, presentation was really intriguing to me, um, and it wasn't just labels either. It was also individual artists um uh and a few that come to mind were were musically influential as well as visually um influential for me uh godflash swans neurosis um these bands that you know had a very clear visual identity um and there was a um a continuity from you know early releases all the way up through, you know, later ones, um, spanning decades. And that kind of focused uh, approach to, um, to, to their work was very, very intriguing to me and part of the allure. It was clear to me that this was a, a total vision. And uh, that was what I always strove for in my work, both with the label as well as uh, the bands I was and am a part of. You and I both grew up in the 80s, and I'm very sure we also know a lot of the same records. And I'm very sure you also know a lot of the New York hardcore scene records from back in the day, or generally those, those East Coast hardcore bands, which also had a very, very, I don't want to say clear and common aesthetic, but I think there was something like that. These live pictures on the back side of a t-shirt, for example, and um, a very, very similar kind of typo. Did that clear and sometimes even sterile uh, kind of uh, vision also appeal to you? Or was that something where you say, no, that's too clean? Um, I mean, I was aware of it. Uh, for sure, but that that aesthetic was not influential for me. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the photography aspect of it. I did. I did and always enjoy seeing live pictures um, in the context of album layouts, um, and that was part of the allure for me, for sure. When I ended up moving to the East Coast myself, just the idea of being able to see shows regularly. Um, and be a, a, a participant on that level. Where I grew up, we had shows for sure, but it was very small and the shows were often few and far between. So this idea mm -hmm. of these more massive uh, gatherings um, uh, definitely was compelling to me. Um, and I like the, the 
um, you know, the the idea of this um, moment in time captured and presented in a sleeve. Um, but again, that wasn't that wasn't a primary influence for me. I, I in fact, I preferred the things like I mentioned swans and Godflesh and neurosis earlier. They were much more mysterious because the the people involved were nowhere evident in the graphic presentation. So it kind of helped preserve the um not the anonymity but just kind of the the magical secrecy around the the, the creators um it was mm -hmm. much more about centering the art and the music rather mm -hmm. than the people behind it yeah. and for, for me that made it more potent um and also i mean uh as far as like the east coast hardcore thing is concerned um you know there was kind of like a, this like macho sort of jock element to a tough to guy image stuff, right? which, yeah which did not never really was appealing to yeah. me um i was not a tough guy i was like a nerdy you know a nerdy um hardcore kid who felt um very much apart from that from that world of like macho male flexing. So <laughs> that that part of it was probably more intimidating or off-putting to me than alluring. When we think about a bet where you've already sent you line, like very often you like to to not be obviously part of the creation of an artwork and does that also and you also mentioned that you know the the appeal of like live photography is something that struck you but not something that you incorporated into your work when we look at a lot of aaron turner artworks visuals posters i very often have a feeling as if they are less focused on people very often they're abstracts is that also part of that whole thinking that the music can speak on its own and the artwork is a part of it, but it's never too personalized? Um, well, I think it's personalized in a in a in a way to me that's actually more effective because um it has more to do with kind of the the hidden aspects of 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 who we are like presenting presenting artwork that or music that in some way is abstract or abstracted in some way or another can say something about who the creator is in a way that a visual image of that person can't um so to me it's more about like a presentation of the sides of us that are hidden or less available um and also, I think, again, just talking about like corporate presentation versus like a more artistic approach to being in a band or running a record label, um, the idea of musician as um, saliable uh, persona is is more of a corporate idea. It's, it's the idea behind creating pop icons, whereas bands and labels and musicians who are more focused on creating sort of a um an artistic narrative around what they were doing for me made it more compelling because it wasn't the idea of trying to sell this person it was an idea mm -hmm. of this person's ideas 
centered as the focal point for what they were doing. Um, and for me, there was definitely like, not like a, an anti-social aspect to being in, involved in underground music, because part of it was very much about trying to find community. But I guess it was sort of this countercultural idea of purposely seeking out and advocating a different mindset where mm -hmm. you know you're 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 trying to say something that goes beyond um you're trying to create something and be a part of something that has more to do with fulfilling people's souls than it has to do with entertaining people um and certainly entertainment is and was a factor and I also think there's something about a lot of the music I've been um, lucky to be a participant in, in that it is about something more than merely just being entertained for a moment. Yeah. Would, would you agree that a lot of the stuff that you have done is more about the, the thing behind the face than the face itself? The person behind the face. Uh, yeah, I think so, and and um, I think a lot of the things that a lot of the ways in which we are identified uh, culturally speaking have more to do with our appearance outwardly yeah. than who we actually are. Mm -hmm. And for me, there's also something about trying to find. Um, sort of the universal aspects of who we are and who I am as a as a connective force through the the work that I'm making or the mm -hmm. work that I'm involved with facilitating. So um, for me, there can be an aspect of, say, a visual piece of abstract art um, that is more universal in its feeling mm -hmm. than something that's more representative a and certainly um than like a, for instance an a, a photo of the artist the photo of the artist is this very specific thing you draw some very clear conclusions about who that person is based upon seeing them whereas if you're engaging with a piece of abstract art you might be able to become more connected to that mm -hmm. because of what it stirs up in you. It's not about perceiving the other person and thinking about them. It's about engaging with something that helps you reflect inward. Which helps you see a part of yourself then. So it's the the interdependence of artist, art, and audience. Yeah, and... Yes, it helps you see something of yourself, but it also is a, a connective thing where if you're able to connect with something that someone else has made on a purely almost intuitive level, then that barrier between yourself and the other person or other people is um, more permeable. Mm -hmm. You've just mentioned intuitive. Is then part of the artwork that you do nowadays? Is it more intuition than plan? Uh, I'd say it's a combo uh, of both. Um, I mean, I'm working on developing a, 
the continual development of my own individual voice and i'm also trying to think less about what i'm making and feel more of mm -hmm. what's happening in the moment that it's being created and that's another reason why improvised music has become more prevalent in what i am uh pursuing um mm -hmm. because it's less about forethought and it's less about um uh perceiving an end result than it is about just inhabiting the moment at which something mm -hmm. is unfolding. When I take this up for a moment and speak about music for a second, is then maybe a series of live recordings of your music a bit more appealing nowadays than a let's say double album with a whole concept behind it not necessarily it really depends on what it is um mm -hmm. i think i think just in terms of fidelity uh, still what is possible in a studio setting versus what's possible in a live recording mm -hmm. so, um is important to me uh like just thinking about what we do with sumac for instance um i think there's been some live recordings that we've done the quality of which is pretty decent but which still isn't quite up to the level of what we're able to get by being mm -hmm. in a studio for a few days and really working mm -hmm. on mic placements and working with an engineer who has a specific idea about how to achieve the sound they have and the sound we want um versus a live recording where a lot of times it's just you know whatever can be thrown together in, in um a short amount of time um that said there is never a way in the studio or i shouldn't say never in my Hardly. experience and in my experience, it is rare to be able to capture the same kind of energy in a studio recording as what is transmissible in the live setting. A part of that has to do with the fact that in the live setting, um, you know, just the physical proximity of the performers to one another and also the, the, the energetic exchange between performer and audience is there. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I mean, both both scenarios have their appeal. Mm -hmm. um, and there are things about each that are are more potent um, or more appealing than the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't necessarily see one as really being better than the other. They're just different. And it, it really depends on what we're trying to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about what you've just mentioned, the connectivity and the feedback and the reversal of influence on sound between an artist on stage and his or her audience yeah i i can see what you i, I totally get what you mean but both have its pros and cons of course um when we look at artists like yourself and you've already hinted at it um very often we talk about periods 
could you identify periods in your work where you say like, oh, for example, the first 10, 15, um, seven inches that we did for Hydra Head were, as you said, a little different. There were a little bit more over the place. Um, or, you know, there I found a certain style that I liked to do. And now it's maybe something totally different. Do you see periods in your work? Um, I could probably break it down into periods uh, to some extent. There mm -hmm. are things which are continuous from the time I started drawing as a child up to the present day. And then there are moments in which my focus um, perceptibly shifted from one method of working to another. Um, it would be hard for me without kind of sitting and considering and maybe even taking notes and looking back at the, you know, the archive of my work to clearly define what the periods are. Um, I would say one of the most major shifts for me, though, was in the early days of Hydrahead, I was not very adept at using a computer. So I was still doing quite a few things by hand. Um, and then uh, as you know, the years went on and I learned yeah. more about how to use the computer as a design tool, I became more interested in using it that way and and making um making sleeves that were you know very evidently designed versus having been painted or drawn or collaged mm -hmm. um and and um that way of designing was very appealing to me for quite some time and i think also had a lot to do with the way that you know, the sleeves ended up looking. There was a lot that I did that could not have been done without the use of a computer. Um, so I guess it's, a, you know, you could roughly say digital versus analog. Mm -hmm. um, and then after a period of years of, you know, really heavy reliance upon the computer as, a, as my visual tool, um, I again started to shift back towards analog production um, to the extent that now I try to do as little as possible um, with the computer and do as much of any given project um, by hand as I can. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there was always something I tried to do in a lot of my design work, balancing um, you know, the, the, the evidence of the human touch with the you know, the, the work of a machine. Um, and th there were times certainly too, where I wanted something to look almost absent of human touch, but largely I've always tried to find a balance between the two. Um, and, uh, now it's just swung more and more back towards the human hand as the, as the main conduit for transmitting, uh, visual ideas. Very interesting. I would not have guessed that you could do that so quickly. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you've hinted at, you know, drawing as a child and, you know, like basically just simply probably liking art, right? Just like my little daughter does. Uh, but however, when did you notice, when was the point where Aaron noticed 
okay, this is a little more than just I like to draw or I like art in a way. When did you notice, oh, I'm really good at this? Um, Apart from the fact that you probably say you won't, you know, I, I know you're too humble to admit that you are really good. <laughs> but uh, when did uh, you notice? Yeah, I don't I don't know that there was a time where I, I, I as a younger person, I, I had this recognition like, oh, I'm really good at art. However, there was at a at a certain point, probably in my early teenage years where I realized I could do things that a lot of my peers couldn't or chose not to do. Uh, I remember, I remember in uh, junior high school, which would have been age 12 or 13, I had drawn the Slayer pentagram logo on the back of one of my school notebooks. And, uh, you know, it has some kind of, uh, um, you know, it has a little bit of shading and perspective in the drawing. And I remember this girl in my class was saying something like, you didn't draw that. And I, I redrew it again to prove that I could do it. And I think that was a moment of realization where I was like, oh, I have this ability to, mm -hmm. to see something and copy it. Uh, and also this ability to conjure things on my own that some other people don't have. Um, so, I, you know, there were there were times where, you know, it was clear to me that, you know, this was ability I had versus abilities that my peers had, like being really good at sports, for instance. Um, and, uh, as far as the other component of that is like, you know, just being like, oh, I'm a kid who draws just like every kid draws was just the fact that I kept doing it. And I realized that, you know, when I was young, you know, most kids drew. And then as I got older, that habit of drawing never stopped. It just was mm -hmm. a continuous part of my life. And there was never at least at that stage, a conscious recognition, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm still doing this. What does this mean? It was more just like, I, I enjoy this. I get something out of it and I'm going to keep doing it. Is there now, is there nowadays like a time or are there moments or weeks better? Let's put it in a bigger perspective, weeks or months when you do not draw, paint, design anything? Or is this still to this day a daily, bi-daily, you know, a regular habit? Um, I would say that it's regular in that there's never, there's never been a point during my life where I stopped for any considerable period of time. However, just because of the flow of life and the number of things in which I'm involved, both within my personal life as, you know, uh, um, a partner and a parent, but also just in terms of workflow with a project. Sometimes I'm focused entirely on working on a piece of music and other times I'm focused entirely on, uh, on, on making visual art. And part of that is just out of necessity. Like, you know, again, to, to talk about what happens during an album cycle, writing the music obviously takes time, as does rehearsing and recording it. And during that time, I definitely spend a lot less time drawing and painting. Um, and then, you know, after a record is finished, uh, I start thinking about the visual 
presentation for it. And, and so I'll spend a lot more time doing that and a lot less time making music. Um, so there, that's the practical aspect of it. The, in terms of creative flow, I also think it's beneficial for me to take breaks from both practices. If I step away from music or if I step away from drawing for a while, often when I come back to it again, there's kind of a, a renewed sense of purpose um, and maybe even um, a different perspective on how to approach it. Um, I think breaks offer, um, they offer a moment for reflection and also a moment for incubation where mm -hmm. I don't have to actively process my ideas, but they're happening somewhere in the background. And then when I return to the paper or I return to my instrument, then those ideas that have been um, sort of simmering in the background can, can emerge uh, in a different way. When you do the artwork for your projects or other visual stuff, um, are you nowadays surer and more conscious of, okay, now it's finished than before? That experience shows you, okay, that's a moment? Um, <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> I think if, if anything, it's gotten harder as I've gotten older. Um, okay. And I think now a lot of times I just have to have a deadline that creates an end point for me uh, because anything can just go on and on okay. in terms of working on it. And um, at this point for me, for instance, if we're talking about writing a song, it's not that I would rework the same part over and over. It's more that if I'm sitting with the composition, eventually I'll find a piece of the song that's not working the way I want it to and throw it out and, and, and insert something else. Or in some cases, just an aban abandon an entire composition. Um, and same, similarly with a painting, for instance, I could look at it for a while, um, and maybe rework certain parts of it until I'm just at a point where either I'm sick of it or I have to turn it into something, um, for a sleeve, uh, and, um, It is a source of, <laughs> it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a source of stress necessarily, but it's something that I have to keep an eye on because no piece of music, no piece of art will ever be finished or developed to my complete satisfaction. And mm -hmm. I think that's ultimately a good thing because it helps stave off complacency with my work um uh but yeah like i said it's just something to keep an eye on because if i if i don't have adequate time to work on something and develop it then i then i'll end up with something that feels um 
that feels disappointing to me because I see the lack of development or the or I see the potential I could have reached that I didn't allow myself to reach but then there's also the flip side of that which is if I let something sit for too long I'm going to be I'm going to be dissatisfied with it because the point at which I was the point at which the piece was generated was about the specific time and place in which it happened and I've mm -hmm. since moved on and therefore can no longer relate yeah. to that piece as I once did. So there's got to be a balance between having enough time to, to honor the, the, the genesis of, of something and, and develop it enough to, to um, a point of relative satisfaction versus getting so far away from the point that something began um, that it's no longer valid for me. Uh, uh, by the time I, I finish it. The next question then is is with with a pinch of humor. I mean, like, how does the record label owner Turner then give the artist Turner a deadline? Or is that then the manufacturer of a sleeve who gives you the deadline? Uh... I mean, I just know that a record's got to come out within a reasonable amount of time, and yeah. you know, uh, and I don't, I don't run a record label. I don't run Hydrahead anymore, um, and even with Siege, we're 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 tapering down quite a bit simply because those practical aspects of record production are less gratifying for me than they once were. However. Um, you know, my work is still obviously being produced by other record labels and I'm not going to, I'm not going to make somebody wait around forever to get pieces mm -hmm. for me. Cause I know what that means for production. It's just, it, it makes it very hard, um, from a record label point of view to just be waiting and waiting and waiting on something, especially if you've already invested money in the project, then it's just like something you're sitting on that ends up being dead weight. Um, so, like I said, you know, having those practical um, boundaries around what I'm doing is helpful because I can just say, well, this has to be done by this period of time. That means I need to allocate a certain amount of hours every day up until, you know, deadline in order to to hopefully get something realized to the point of it being um good enough <laughs> and i say that i say that um truthfully like i don't think like i said i don't think there's ever going to be something that feels perfect to me and i'm glad for that i just have to get it to the point where i feel like i've done the best i could at that particular moment in time do you i mean like you've said that you are never 100 percent content with your work as a musician or as a visual artist. But how does it then feel when you see that your own artwork is now already been adapted and is already being in a second generation and source of influence on other people? I'll give you an example. Good friends of mine from around here, uh, from Wurzburg, Cranial, they have a record which very much looks like Terraformer by Knut. 
Knut's record, on the other hand, looks very much, or not very much, but closely related to Signal 5 by Isis that you, if I remember correctly, also designed. Do you then recognize something like that where you are being the influence? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen sleeves from other bands and other artists where I can see some element of what I have done having trickled out into somebody else's work. And I think it's uh, that's a totally natural and normal thing that happens. It's a necessary part of being uh, an artist. Nothing is created in a void. Um, nobody develops an in uh, a, an, a context that is a hundred percent their own. Um, I do think that there are certainly artists who are visionary and 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 come up with things that um, are highly unique to them, and even those artists. Uh, almost always have some identifiable DNA within their structures. Um, so I'm glad to have provided inspiration for other artists in the same way that I'm grateful to have received inspiration from so many artists and musicians throughout my life. Um, and I think for me, it has been a source of not of satisfaction necessarily, but kind of an indicator that I've done something that has been, um, it's been potent enough to have impacted other people. And, and, and uh, I think, yeah, ultimately that's been a, a, a good indicator that I've done something worthwhile. Let me once again assure you, you have. Um, something that, of course, I have to ask, for you as a visual artist, not only in the sense of giving your own label some kind of cohesive visual appearance, but which artists in general had an influence on you developing your style? Um... I mean, it's a whole, at this point, it would be hard to narrow it down. Uh, and again, there's periods too. Um, the uh, the periods early uh, that I can identify early on would be, um, you know, discovery of comic book and fantasy artwork. Um, there was a whole series of books I read when I was a kid um, that were about, you know, knights and witches and wizards and, and all of those sort of fantastical things. And the illustrations in those definitely imprinted themselves on me. And same with comic books. I read comics from a pretty early age, both the mainstream type things as well as more underground stuff. And that had a lot to do with... Um, how I started developing as an artist was just looking at that stuff and either copying it directly or emulating it. Um, and then later um, in my in my teenage years, I was exposed to uh, fine art, um, both historical and um, and current. And I went to uh, I went to university um for fine art essentially and was exposed to more there 
Um, and I think that that sort of dual exposure and interest has been a constant for me up to the present day where, you know, there's stuff that's, you know, uh, pop art or, 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 you know, uh, supposedly lowbrow art, commercial art, um, that's had a lot to do with what I have chosen to do and what's interested me and also fine art, which is, um, uh, had another, another different and equally important impact on what I do. I mean, I know that you nowadays live a little bit outside of the beaten paths on an island in, uh, if I remember correctly, Vancouver Sound. How often do uh, you have uh, a uh, Pu Puget Sound, Puget, um, sorry. which... Yeah, yeah, that's no, fine. Uh, that is for sound off, uh, offside of Seattle, right? Puget, Puget Sound? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how often do you have a chance, or how often do you in general go to art shows nowadays? Almost never. Um, a lot of what I encounter is just looking at books and mm -hmm. looking at the internet. Um, mm -hmm. When I have the opportunity, it's nice to be able to see it in person. Um, but most of the artwork that I'm seeing in person in my life these days is done by people I know. Um, so that's my encounter with uh, artwork in real life, as it were. Um, uh, living where I live, there's just, I mean, I could get to the Seattle Art Museum's relatively easily but i don't have a lot of leisure time to go and do things like that most of most of the time i have that's available to me i spend with my child or i spend working on my own my own stuff um so it's nice for me to be able to see art in person when i can and it's also not a huge priority for me mm -hmm. And then you, as an artist, have relatively recently developed another branch for your visual art. You have turned to tattooing. I mean, like, apart from the fact that you yourself have one or two tattoos. <laughs> um, how did that turn into a profession for you? Uh, there's a, a bunch of different aspects to that. And I'd say the sort of the origin story has to do with my interest in rock and roll. Um, just getting into heavy metal when I was a very young kid, you know, nine or however old I was, I immediately noticed not only the graphics that were presented along with the albums themselves, but just also what the musicians looked like um and you know they wore strange clothes and they had lots of tattoos and outlandish outfits and that was appealing to me um there was an element of of um sort of like ritual uh donning of a costume in order to perform a ritual and and um 
Um, you know, a lot of it was sort of campy and ridiculous, but then there was also something about it that I think touched something deeper to, in me, just like this idea that you put something on to become another person in mm -hmm. order to, to perform a specific um, act uh, and, and, and in these cases, a specific creative act. Um, so in some ways, I think tattooing um, and my interest in it goes all the way back to that early recognition of people decorating themselves and, and how that identified them. Um, and then another aspect of it, kind of on the, on the flip side, is it is a practical way in which I can use my particular skills to provide for my family and and make money um and uh i have been lucky enough to find different activities in my life that are closely related to the things that i just want to do anyway that mm -hmm. also allow me to serve the very practical need of having money to buy food and have a place to live yeah um so tattooing for me in that way has been great because as uh, a parent of a young child i don't want to be touring all the time and that's basically been my primary source of income as an adult is as, as a touring musician and i don't want to be gone all the time and so tattooing was something i was interested in already and then it became apparent to me that it could be a thing that I could do that was a creative pursuit that also had a social aspect to it of being in a shop setting with coworkers as well as clients um, that would kind of fulfill that need for having an, a creative social outlet and also allow me to stay home more often. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the final component is art and music have been um they've been a constant in my adult life and while uh, as we've discussed i'm not content to just kind of rest on um rest on the work that i've done i'm always interested in in pursuing and 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 um further challenges i basically know what i'm doing with with making music and making art uh, I, I know how to play guitar. I know how to use a brush and a pen. Um, tattooing is an entirely different practice in terms of the technical, um, process of, of giving a tattoo. And for me, that's a, a, um, invigorating challenge and also a humbling experience, which I think I need, um, I think I need to be challenged by learning something else. I think I want and need to be humbled by being a beginner at something at this stage of my life. Um, a lot of tattooers that I know started in some cases in their teens or, you know, at the latest in their early 20s. And so taking up something in my mid 40s and having zero skill in that area has been really really hard and frustrating and also really um like i said invigorating for me so as i said if you ever come to europe to do like a stint here or there i'm client numero uno 
Um, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm honestly, happy. Uh, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. I'm happy to do it, and I'm uh, I'm I'm grateful to the fact that anybody wants to get tattoos from me because honestly, <clears throat> as I said, I'm a beginner uh, in this practice, and I'm aware of the fact that many, if not most, of the people who are coming to me are doing it not because I'm very good at tattooing, but because they like my art and my music. Yeah. And so I, I'm lucky in that regard to have that little loophole there. Hmm. Um, one thing that struck me while I was preparing this interview, um, I know that you're not one of those highly competitive jocks that you've mentioned. You know, you're, you probably were not the sports guy, you're not the quarterback back in high school. Yep. However, I felt as if there was one person with which you had a very good friendship level, but somebody who pushed you and you pushed him. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is Jacob that one person who you've known for a very, very long time, who is also a very good visual designer, who where you two pushed each other and bounced off each, off each other? Um, maybe early on, uh, definitely when I was starting Hydrahead and establishing it in Boston, Jake was a person that I spent a lot of time with and who was very helpful for me. He had a great grasp on how to use the computer as a tool, uh, a design tool. And a lot of what I learned, I learned from just, you know, sitting with him while he was helping put together a sleeve for, for Hydrahead or, um, you know, asking him about, you know, uh, you know, different specific questions about using a program or a specific font or something like that. Um, but that was really only in the first couple years mm -hmm. uh, of doing Hydrahead. And after that, Jake and I just kind of went our separate ways, not because of any falling out, but just we became bus busy with our own pursuits. Um, and I think that there was probably a lot of <laughs> musical and visual common ground there that led us both to being where we are. Um, at the same time, Jake is not a person I've had uh, an ongoing um, artistic dialogue with. He's not a person that I still have these conversations with. There's, there's, been another group of people over the last you know 20 years that i've become more connected to who i would say are a regular part of my artistic practice in terms of people who is um whose opinions i i value and whose conversations um who i have conversations with regularly enough that it informs my process mm. Mm -hmm. I can see that. And of course, you live on totally opposite ends of a continent, which is always also <laughs> a difficult thing, right? So, yeah, for Aaron, sure. first of all, thanks for all those insights and all those cool ideas about you as an artist and also the connections to your music. However, nobody leaves the Veil of Sound interview without having to go for a quickfire round. So I'll always give you two alternatives, like... Coca-Cola versus Pepsi, deep dish pizza versus real pizza, um, Michigan versus Wisconsin, whatever. And you have to choose. 
So let's start with two artists that I'm very sure you know. And you have to choose which one would you rather hang up on your wall. Derek Hess versus Frank Kozik. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, Derek Hess. Can you explain that a little bit? Or do you have um, one specific thing in mind? No, just Kozik. Uh, Kozik is very graphic and simple, and a lot of it is is I wouldn't say sterile, but very clean. And Derek has always had a much more uh, kinetic sort of raw aspect to his work, and that definitely appeals to me more. It looks, it looks more. Uh, well, I should say it looks less calculated and more vigorous to me. Mm -hmm. Posters, of course, in our realms are a huge thing. Do you rather prefer like psychedelic posters of, let's say, the 60s or 60s or 70s or like those technoid, like very much leaning into technology things of the 80s and 90s, which is more to your liking? I mean, I would say some of the 60s stuff, but not even necessarily like the like the psychedelic stuff, per se. Like when I think about poster art, the stuff I really like a lot would be like Saul Boss, like the Hitchcock posters. Mm -hmm. um, just really cool typography, really graphic, really simple color schemes, but just a lot of... Um, a lot of very intentional um, and very precise arrangement of elements in space. Um, and poster art for me is very much a graphic design pursuit. And so the stuff that I think functions the best is the stuff that's most oriented towards that, mm -hmm. um, towards that idea of the, of serving a, um uh, an ultimately commercial purpose of conveying what the thing is that it's presenting in this very eye-catching way um and i think that um again just talking about Saul Boss like his his style was very identifiable although it became less identifiable because so many people people emulated it but um his style was very identifiable and it was very clearly artistic and he was also able to effectively um, create pieces that did what they were supposed to do, which is promote uh, promote the, the films to which they were attached. When you're already talking about film, I didn't want to go into that, but then I at least give you two directors and I think we both like most of their work. Alfred Hitchcock versus Hitchcock versus Stanley Kubrick. Whose oeuvre do you or can you enjoy more? Uh, Kubrick, for sure. Um, I mean, there would be no Kubrick without Hitchcock, but I spent a lot more time watching Kubrick than I have Hitchcock. Uh, and we we were talking earlier about, you know, the idea of a perfect piece of art or music. Um, and for me, that doesn't exist within my own efforts. However, there are things I can look at from others that I perceive as being damn near close mm -hmm. to perfect. And I think Kubrick's got some movies like that that are just so 
they 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 come across more as um it's not so much apparent as the creation of a person as it seems like a dream which has been accurately presented through um <laughs> through the human filter um mm -hmm. For other people to experience, and for me, I, I was just having a conversation with Faith about this the other day. If you were able to extract these things that you see in dreams and present them as pieces of art for other people, it would be pretty miraculous. Because the things of which the things our minds are capable of is pretty wondrous. And Kubrick, to me, is one of those directors who has come closest to that where mm -hmm. there is something so so believable and so powerful yet so simultaneously otherworldly that it's that it's overwhelming um and and also just seems utterly um utterly otherworldly there's there's just no other way to put it it's like he reached into another dimension and was able to put it in front of you I can totally get that. You've spoken about fine art. And I want to give you two uh, couples. And we'll start with probably the two most famous Spanish painters of the 20th century. Uh, Picasso versus Dali. Uh, Picasso. Mm -hmm. um... I, would, I would have bet, bet on that one. Yeah. Dolly is, I mean, he's interesting and he was interesting to me when I was younger, but again, you know, going back to Hess and Kozik, Picasso was much more exploratory and at times much more um, <clears throat> aggressively experimental. Uh, Dolly's ideas were certainly very, obviously, surreal and highly invested in that in that exploration of surreality. Uh, Picasso, though, seemed more interested in um, his personal evolution. He never rested in one period indefinitely. He kind of just moved from one thing to the next, and in some cases made really radical turns in direction. And for me, that's it, that, that willingness to just kind of abandon something for which you you know, received accolades and praise and pursue something else entirely different is almost more interesting to me than the results themselves. It's like this mm -hmm. idea of, um, that's this idea of uh, pursuing um, what you need to do versus what people expect of you. And I think yeah. that, that 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 to me has been kind of a, an artistic ethos to follow. Is it also because not, not, Dali... specific, not specifically not specifically because of Picasso, but just in terms of the art that I've appreciated throughout yeah. my life, art and music. Is is that also is that preference for Dali maybe also due to a little bit due to the fact that Dali, of course, is much more planned, less intuitive than lots of Picasso stuff? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, there are things that I appreciate that are highly refined. I mean, Kubrick's another example. Like his work could not could not be done in a very um, incautious way. There's a lot of calculation that had to occur there. But it, uh, but most often, especially with music and and painting. Um, the element of danger that's apparent in work that has rough edges uh, is is definitely appealing to me. As you were speaking about pop art, Roy Lichtenstein versus Keith Haring. Uh, Keith Haring. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to say, neither of them are particularly appealing to me visually. Mm -hmm. But uh, Keith Haring, as an artist, seems like a more interesting person and certainly more radical and had, you know, a, a political component for sure to what he was doing. Um, whereas Lichtenstein might have been kind of defying expectations within the art world, but ultimately, for me, it's kind of, I don't know. I'm not going to say vapid necessarily, but there's just not a lot there. And I know that that was partially the point. Whereas I guess that's, it feels more self-referential to the art world. Whereas what Keith Haring was doing had more relevance to the world and to people on mm -hmm. a wider scale. And that makes it more interesting to me. You've also mentioned your love for comics. So I'll give you two comic artists. Alan Moore versus Todd McFarland. <laughs> no contest there. I mean, one is much more a writer and the other is visual, so it's a little bit hard to compare, but Alan Moore for sure. Um, Todd McFarland is an excellent draftsman. Um, ultimately, though, pretty safe and conventional in most ways, and yeah. whereas Alan Moore very much purposely was trying to subvert the comics form altogether uh, and is very much aligned with um, a lot of my own ideas uh, about what art can be. Um, McFarland seems content to kind of just exist within the world of, of commercial comics production, whereas I think Alan Moore is simply using comics as a conduit for his ideas about mm -hmm. spirituality, about existence, about um, everything from the most trivial to the most um, grand aspects of human existence. Um, so it's it's very far reaching in its aim, sometimes to the point of being um, not necessarily pretentious, but, you know, it, it's, <laughs> uh, it can at times be kind of, um, it can kind of crumple under its own weight, I suppose. But for the most part, he's created a lot of really successful and adventurous work. Um, so yeah, for me, that's, I, I mean, he's just a, an influential character for me. Absolutely. Whereas McFarlane, you know, as a teenager was a person whose drawings I tried to copy, but as an adult has very little um, relevance to my creative pursuits or existence. And when we talk about Marvels, 
I I always love to ask the following question because I think it shows a little bit about the person, uh, at least over here in Europe. Um, Marvel versus DC. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they, you know, both those things as entities figured largely in my early years. Again, not so much now. Yeah. Um, but definitely, I would say, you know, back in those years, uh, Marvel would have been much more interesting to me. Uh, the idea, especially with the X-Men of uh, a band literally of mutants and, uh, in other words, outsiders, yeah. Um, their existence was kind of antisocial uh, in a certain way. Um, that was much more relatable to me than the idea of, you know, Superman, for instance, this very... Um, He's too clean, isn't he? Very broadly appealing um, and almost, I guess, sort of like the invincibility of Superman. Obviously, you know, he had his foes or whatever who, who knew his weak points and there was kryptonite, but that was a lot less believable or relatable to me than, uh, you know, a character like Spider-Man, who, for instance, who was like essentially a scared teenage boy who uh, tried his best to, to reconfigure his world uh, after undergoing a massive change. I have two more questions like that for you. Um, we have been talking about corporate identity, and I know that that is not something that you really strive for. But very often, corporate identity is also connected to having something like a mascot. And in our realms of heavy music, there are a few bands whose mascots have outgrown them. And I think that <laughs> the following two, uh, I know you know them, and you just have to choose between Eddie and the Crimson Ghost. <laughs> uh eddie for sure i mean partially because eddie was a creation specific to iron maiden versus the crimson ghost who was you know um adopted as a mascot um and again just talking about formative things for me i didn't really get the misfits when i was young uh, at least with my initial exposure to them i was way more invested in metal than i was in punk Uh, in in my early years and when i first heard the misfits i was like what is this racket like i just it didn't make sense to me and maiden though they were never one of my favorites certainly had some albums that i spent quite a bit of time with and part of the appeal was definitely the sleeves i remember looking at those Derek riggs paintings um you know for the first 10 or so maiden albums and just being finding them very compelling. Um, and sometimes, yeah, more than the music itself. I definitely, I think I probably liked Crazy Eddie more as a visual than I liked any Iron Maiden song. Um, but the two kind of put together were uh, an interesting juxtaposition for me. And, and it helped create a world around this band that went just, again, kind of beyond liking a song here or there. And I think Eddie is also much more adaptable. You know, he can, you can put him in a lot of different phases and faces and facades, whatever. And it's always still recognizably Eddie. Whereas for Crimson Ghost, more or less always the same. 
just is what it is. Yeah. And there's like this idea of Eddie simultaneously existing across different times and, and realities. And so there, yeah, there's a lot more room for a narrative there. Last one. And here I close the cycle to one of the other interviews here in our Christmas marathon. A few days ago, I was talking to Steve Von Till. And when I prepared for that interview and we were talking about New Road recordings, and um, I saw that Isis was the fifth band outside of any neurot or neurosis, sorry, neurosis-related projects to release an album or a record through neurot recordings. So my question for you, when you look at neurosis and you have to choose between the covers for Souls at Zero and Enemy of the Sun, which one would you choose? Uh, definitely Enemy of the Sun, um, okay. simply because that was the first Neurosis record that I encountered, and it had a very, very big impact on me um, musically and to a and to a lesser extent visually. Um, I remember the front and back cover for that record just being really striking to me when I first got it in the mail, and uh, the cover also, I I think in a way. Um, is a great representation of the music uh that it's that it's um the face of and so yeah that's that's an easy one for me um i know souls at zero for a lot of people um is a very iconic cover and i like it but it it's it to me did not have nearly the same impact and also again it was hard for me to go back and hear souls of zero uh, souls at zero and find it as compelling as enemy of the sun was when i first heard it um i think souls at zero was like a transitional step for them where they were becoming something but i yes. think enemy of the sun was like the where they had arrived at at becoming what they what they did before anybody asks why i chose those two i chose those two specifically because i think they have uh, covers that can be put into so many narratives, more narratives than, for example, for Silver and Blood. My favorite, nah, my second favorite, my favorite is, is Grace, but one of my favorite Neurosis albums. But I think when it comes to narratives behind a record cover by Neurosis or for a Neurosis record, and Souls at Zero and Enemy are the ones that are most applicable to a multitude of narratives. One very, very last question, and I'm not sure if you can pick one very, very easily, but maybe you do. Do you have an all-time favorite record cover that you have not worked on, neither as a band nor as an artist? No, I, I definitely not. Um... I mean, there have been many, many record sleeves that I've encountered at my life in my life that have been important to me for one reason or another, but certainly none that would stand out above the others as mm -hmm. as an all-time favorite. 
is that also because you perceive art also as a process and not as a finite thing? Um, I mean, yeah, and also just because there have been different things at different times of my life where, you know, an album, and there could be an album cover from my youth that was so important to me because of what the album represented mm -hmm. in, at that point versus, you know, looking at sleeves through my eyes later on, I was able to, to um, critically appraise them of their visual worth both in terms of how striking they were as an image and how appropriately they conveyed the ideas of the record to, to which they were connected uh, but also simply just because there's so much that i've ingested throughout my life and so much that's been important to me that i it would be hard to say you know this this sleeve is the the most important to me um and yeah i'm I, it's partially because of what you said but also because sleeves serve a lot of different functions um in terms of what they do for uh for an album and for the person encountering it i know that if i had asked a lot of people in the post metal or heavy rock world i'm very sure that a lot of people would have mentioned one of the record covers that you've done what you've done or one of the record covers for your bands and projects it's very nice to say to see that you, how should I say, um, think of it a little differently, um, not in terms of like favorite ever. Aaron, yeah. thanks for your time. Thanks for all the cool thoughts, interconnections between the artist and the musician. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Now, here is your chance for the first final last words in 2024 to our audience your stage is yours oh <laughs> uh well without say sounding trite or or you know maybe trivializing <clears throat> the complexity of all the things that are happening any effort that each one of us can make to be kinder and more understanding of one another is going to serve us in a very important way um to put it mildly uh mm. I, in fact i would say our survival depends on it so i wish for everyone to be kinder and gentler and more loving with themselves and with all those they encounter and even those that we'll never meet or see in this particular um, moment of our existence I think that's a very good ending to the first interview in 2024. Aaron, thanks a lot for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too.